Hello, this is Jack Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to experimental musicians and sound artists about three records that are important to them. My guest this time is Lasse Maruk, a Norwegian musician working within the experimental and noise sector. Extremely prolific, very important, I guess, to the noise and experimental scene in the fact that he's incredibly well connected, has been involved in so many different projects and collaborations. Um, he's definitely been involved in way over 300 individual releases, whether that's as a collaborator, a producer, or an artist. And it seems that I can't do an interview with another musician these days without them mentioning some kind of uh, involvement with Lassa or a story where Lassa has been really helpful in terms of his connections or his creative input. He, in fact, contributed to a compilation I put out called Brink. He did two one-minute tracks, one of which he said could blow people's speakers uh, and recommended that I put a warning just in case people complain that their hi-fi just erupted. Um, and he's masterful, really, in his control of frequencies and the intensity of the sound that he amasses when he creates his compositions. So it was a real pleasure to speak to him. You can check out more information on Lassa, including info on a new upload that he's just done of um, a load of tape releases from the 90s. There's a whole host of material running from 1990 through to 1999 that's just gone up on his Bandcamp. So I'll put all the links in the show notes and over at attentionmagazine.co.uk slash crucial listening. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Lassa talking about his three important albums. Hello, Lassa. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you, Jack. So, you were over in my part of the, the world, vaguely, in the UK at least, in London, only a couple of weeks back. Whatabouts were you doing there? Yeah, I was, it was, it's always nice to visit civilizations uh, <laughs> from time to time. Um, because, you know, I, I live in the far north of Norway, in the, the city of Buda, which is above, about five hours drive above the Arctic Circle. So it's always nice to get out and, and feel uh, civilization and, and see what's going on. Uh, but I was there just for one day. I did a, a concert at Cafe Otto with my friend uh, Kim Mir. Uh, and we put out an album earlier this year and we sort of started a collaboration. And so I was there in less than 24 hours, and I, I wish I stayed longer. Wow. You're the second guest I've had in a row who's made a very quick visit to somewhere abroad. Um, I imagine it must be... Look, the, the other person was Lawrence English, who pinged across to Europe 
um, for like, I don't know, two days. But it must be quite a head spin to do that because obviously playing a show requires a lot of investment and travel as well can be, I don't know, fatiguing for me anyway. I mean, how do you handle those sort of flash visits like that? I used to be really good at it. I, I now have a daughter who is three years old, and I, I travel far less. And I don't tour anymore, basically. And I travel far less. And and, uh, and but before she was born, I would travel all the time. I was I was constantly traveling, and it wouldn't really. It was it was very easy for me. Um, you 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 get more relaxed and like. Airports and all these things, but I, I see now that one, you know, when I travel less, it becomes more of an of an effort. Um, so I guess it's it's a it's a muscle that you 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 flex. But now I'm sort of old and and rusty. <laughs> <laughs> and how was the show itself? I mean, Oto is a a venue that I hold dear. It's been pretty instrumental in my acquaintance with live experimental music as someone over here relatively close to london how did you find the show i love Otto. same as you i think it's an important venue it's really uh, a place that how do you say it's it's much needed and i remember the time before Otto, and london was kind of dead actually uh, i remember playing more gigs in in places like newcastle and leeds than I would in London. Uh, so it's just it, now it feels like London, uh, Otto has been in London forever, but you know I, you remember a time when it wasn't there, and it's definitely filled uh, a huge gap that was uh, very very much uh, welcome when when Otto came. But, yeah, and it's an interesting layout for a venue, I think, and I think it works in its advantage sometimes and against it at others in the almost the way the seating and tables are arranged as. Um, a very slight social aspect to the way that place is set up Um, but then I think that can produce quite a relaxed atmosphere there's quite a loose boundary between where the audience and the performance are um, performers are sorry Um, well I I, I like that I I, for me that's a great thing because I don't like playing on the stage right I'd rather not play on the stage. I would rather sit on the floor next to people to play. And and one thing is, I think with electronic music, it's it's really boring to begin with because there's not a lot of visual things going on. And once and as you put yourself higher than the audience, they, they don't see anything what's going on. So I would I would always get these questions like, "What are you doing? What are these instruments?" And you know, they, people are curious. So I found if I sat in the audience next to people, they could see what I'm doing, and then they could sooner uh, realize that it's not really important what I'm doing. It's just a bunch of crap on the table, and how it sounds <laughs> is, is, is more is what I want them to focus on. So if I sat next to them, close to them, they could see that, and then they could just relax and, and, and uh, hopefully focus on the music. Uh, the other thing is that when when I'm sitting at, on the floor, I could I could have the PA behind me, so I could hear the same as the audience are hearing. Because when you're on the stage and you have monitoring, you you you're basically relying on a simulated version of what you hope is going out to the people in the venue, and you have to trust the sound engineer. 
and I've I've had my my fights with sound engineers over the years. Although <laughs> it's become much nicer when you come to a place like Otto, they they really know this this stuff, so that's not a problem. But yeah, I I, I enjoy being on the floor. I, I enjoy demystifying this this uh, this thing with the guy with the crap on the table. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's sort of it's sort of alchemy. This music. It's you're 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 taking something crappy and you hopefully making something interesting out of it yeah i mean the sound engineer um feuds i've been i've been witness to a few of those especially when the music in question is of a noisy nature you know i've had sound engineers go look if he's gonna sit that close to that speaker with all that sheet metal it's gonna feed back is he aware of that (laughs) um (laughs) um, but yeah i i mean i totally agree with you about the monitoring thing i don't i i I personally i really struggle with it because i think the unity surely between yourself and your listenership and and being able to uh, i guess try and elicit some kind of empathy and engage in that yourself depends very much so on what you're both hearing and sharing that experience i mean particularly with your stuff lesser i mean your use of frequencies feels so um exact and often very visceral and knowing whether it's going to have that visceral quality is surely dependent on being able to feel it in your bones in the same manner as the people in attendance will do. That's true. And and despite what I, I guess a number of people believe, I'm, I'm not really out to hurt people or to make, <laughs> something, to make something painful. But I, I am expressing a very intense type of music. And it's, but it's also very delicate. So I want I don't want to subject people to something that's you know above you know across a certain level of what you can endure and if I'm hearing the same as they are and I'm that I'm subjecting myself to the same thing as them I could I could uh, be more precise in in the in the frequency range and and I've found that I could I could take people from a specific point of you know the concert starts is nothing, but I could take them to um, to to extremes that they probably didn't think that they would be willing to go to. But I I'm sitting there myself, and I can work it very carefully, and and this is this is this has become, I guess what what I do uh, quite a lot when when I play is this very very slow meticulous build-up and and reaching this sort of uh, climax i guess it's been interesting for me to reflect on what you're doing now and how that contrasts to maybe earlier periods of your life as a, a creator of of sound particularly given that you've just uploaded a whole bunch of stuff to Bandcamp. I know it's a collection of tapes that were digitized back in back 10 years ago now. Um, 10 years ago, yeah, I did a box set of, of my cassette works of the, of the 1990s when I was a teenager starting up. Mm. And it sounded like the process of initially pulling that together back in 2007 may have been quite interesting in terms of reflecting on 
the type of sounds that you were generating then. I mean, how's it been to re-reflect, I guess, on these releases another 10 years on? I mean, have the thoughts that you've had over that material changed at all in the process of, of it coming back to the top of your consciousness again? You know, I, I listen to this old material and I hear, I hear the, the young Lasse Marek, I hear the kid trying to find his way in this music that he's fascinated by. He's, he's, I'm testing out these things, I'm exploring, and I'm, I'm young and I have you know, too much <laughs> energy and, and <laughs> so probably quite naive in some sense, but there is this sense of exploration. But I also hear that I'm, I haven't really developed that much in terms of ideas and what I like and, and you know, the sound world that I have. It's, I'm basically doing the same thing. And there is this saying that any artist is basically just redoing the same three, four ideas over and over again. And that may be cynical to say, but, but there's some truth to, to that also. And, and I think I've become more refined over the years. I've, I've, I've become more self-aware. I know what I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot more, and I've become technically much more sophisticated than I was with when I was just a 14-year-old kid with a, a tape recorder screaming in my bedroom. Uh, but, but, it's, but it's basically pursuing a lot of the same thing, themes and ideas and feelings. And I, there's also the saying that an artist is in love with a specific feeling, a specific mood. And, and I think that's, there's also some truth to that. Yeah, because I guess this is only real, really stuff that you can acknowledge within yourself or, or begin to understand from these kind of bird's eye perspective moments where you're compiling all this um yeah this i don't think i don't enjoy looking at my old listening to my old music i don't really i i have a very low sense of nostalgia i keep all the stuff and i want to have it available because it's me it's what i've done but i i don't really uh i don't really <laughs> i don't have a great need to to uh to sit and, and listen to these things but you know i've i've, I've done it I, and i've done it i've done it publicly so i should at least control in some sense how that material is being um being presented and being kept available i think it's interesting you mention the um lack of nostalgia you feel over your own sounds i mean I want to now move on to the records that you've picked for Crucial Listening, but before I'll ask you to put forward the name of your first first suggestion, I mean, we've had some discussions, you and I, about how to approach this selection of the three records, and I think the subject of what important signifies um, has been a quite important, a quite crucial part of that, and um, I know that you may have had some thoughts about some records where Perhaps they were, on first glance, perceived to be significant to you, but maybe on closer reflection, don't have that present tense pertinence that these other records do. I found that uh, a number of the things that were important to me, I've, 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 I've either outgrown them, or I've, how do you say, I've, I've grown away from them. Mm. Um, it's not like that. I've, I've, you know, they're. I think they're, they're crap. It's just that. Uh, you know, things serve their purpose, and and then you you move on to to other things. Uh, and I found that very few of those those crucial albums 
uh, important albums for me have stayed with me. There's, there's so so few of them that's, that stayed with me. And I also think that I heard things backwardsly. Because I started making experimental music without really having heard experimental music. I started out as this kid in the north who, who had this, this idea that I could, I could just explore sound. And then I came to the realization later, being informed by other people, that there is there's actually a long history of this music. So I discovered things, and then I found that, oh, other people have been doing it for a long time. And, and so I, I heard things in the, in, the wrong, <laughs> in the wrong order, I guess. <laughs> That's interesting. I imagine, though, it was probably quite, uh, probably had quite a profound influence on a lot of the decisions you made. I mean, do you think you would have perhaps gone a different route had you already been aware that some people had been paving a similar path? Maybe would you have had more thoughts around, oh, am I infringing on what's already been created? Or yeah, that might be. I might might, might be that I be I would have become more. Um, how do you say, um, self-aware, and, and maybe it would have been a, a, a hinder for me. But I, it's hard to tell. It's hard to of tell. I, I've become, but because I was just by myself doing this music, and nobody was there to guide me or inform me, and I would just grab whatever small pieces of information I could get. This was before the internet. I guess before, because of that, um, I just learned to just to do stuff and just not really be too afraid about how it's perceived or how people think about it and so I, I still have this this i guess this this lucky ability ability to just go ahead and do things on my own i don't i don't really need to sit around to get um how do you say uh, being acknowledged or or this i just i just do things nice um so let's turn to your first of the three albums that you've selected you can Pick them in any order you please. Yeah. Um, which one do you want to go for first? Well, let's go for the <laughs> the one that's um, that may be surprising, but it's it's Pink Floyd with Metal, the nineteen seventy one album. Um, and this this is an album that uh, has stayed with me since I've heard it. It's it's been important. I've liked it since the first day I I I, I, I first heard it. And but I don't remember when I heard it, but I knew I there was it was. Uh, I was probably before my teenage years, and it was it was very typical for kids who were interested in music here to 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 fall in love with Pink Floyd. You know, it's um, it's uh, <laughs> how to say um, it was just part of the education. It was part of the musical education. <laughs> These were albums that your parents had in their uh, in their record collection, and, and you know, D Dark Side of the Moon, of course, was is famous. Uh, but metal was the one that I connected to the most. Any idea why you chose metal over the other potential choices you could have gone for here? Uh, well, yes, I think it's two songs that makes me uh, makes me go for that. Uh, it's the opening track, which is one of these days, <clears throat> and then it's echoes. Of course, the side long uh, side B. The track, the, the monumental 23 minutes uh, track. And I think this was the first time that I heard uh, a sidelong track, that a piece of music could fill an entire side of an LP. It was was mind-blowing when I first heard it. it. And it just went 
weird places and it, it took its time it didn't you know it doesn't it doesn't hurry on doesn't follow the the, the short uh, four minute song structure it doesn't it's not in a hurry and it's long and experimental and has weird sounds and and effects uh, and, and it's you know it's, it's kind of like a trip and uh, and when I was a young kid, that, that made a huge impression on me, that, that B-side, Echoes. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing what can happen when the duration is able to reach this extent, particularly within the context, I think, of music, which has a basis in songwriting. I mean, this piece has the time available or makes the time available, rather, to deviate so far from its centre and then comes back to itself in the final stages. And there's that recurrence of, I guess, the more song-centric element of the track at the end, once you've sort of been stumbling through this weirdness of, uh, this wilderness of weird sounds. Yeah. And then suddenly it hits you again that you're, you're kind of back where you were 10 minutes ago. That's pretty startling to listen to, I think, even now. Yeah, I, and I still like that. I still like music that takes you for a ride i i like that it just it goes out into this weird place and then it comes back and it's it doesn't really come back to the exactly the same spot but it comes back to song form and this fascinated me as a kid and and it's it's kind of a big mystery the the song to me still I, i'm now much more able to analyze it and i realize and i saw david gilmore say this that it's basically a dialogue between bit between the guitar and um and the keyboards um um, and uh, but it still sort of it has something mysterious to it. There's something big and grand, and and I think I I, I think I like that. I think that I like that in music. I like music that has this feeling of something huge, you know, this cosmic thing, all, all that stuff. I liked, and I maybe it connects to the the my environment. These you know <laughs> these mountains and this <laughs> this harsh climate and so and so. I don't know. I I like it. Yeah, I'm just doing some research as well prior to speaking to you. I, I mean, it's one of these records that seems to have such a great wealth of fascinating information around the particulars of how the record was made. Yeah. And it's one of these albums seemingly where you can isolate a particular instrument and you can bet that there's an interesting anecdote as to why the instrument sounded the way it did or why the idea came into fruition either through serendipity or some mm. moment of crazed genius you know um well they were experimenting with multi-tracks in, in a way that that was quite adventurous of its of its time and and for me this this album is their their masterpiece uh i know a lot of people like dark side of the moon but i think dark side of the moon is too I think it's too clever. It's too designed in a way, uh, and I, I also think at Dark Side of the Moon, Roger Waters started to think that he was a good lyric writer, <laughs> which, which I disagree with. And, and I, I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't like The Wall a lot because I think John Roger Waters, his, his ideas of of, uh, of you know lyrics, I think to have meaning, and you know he's obsessed with the war, and you know social injustice and all that and that's fine but i don't i don't think this i don't really like it i like that in the early days of pink floyd the lyrics were just images they just 
they just like poetry that doesn't really mean anything. It's it's it doesn't it doesn't doesn't have to have a clear meaning behind them. And I think after that, when Roger Waters took over the band, uh, they got sidetracked. And I actually prefer the Pink Floyd after that, <laughs> the, right. the one that everybody seems to hate. But I, I think that's they just went for big. They just went huge, the visceral. Uh, this, uh, this light excess and lasers and you know too many musicians and all that. I actually appreciate that more than than you know the important Pink Floyd that has something to tell you. But I think at, at metal it, it, that was perfect. It was the perfect balance of, of everything. I I could have I could have um, uh, I could have uh, taken their their second album, which is um, Source Flow Secrets. I think that's also a, a kind of a masterpiece. But uh, metal is metal has echoes, and and that what makes it the the best one for me. But it, I think it is a flawed album. There's there's this there's this track on at the end of side A, which is called Seamus, which is blues <laughs> with a dog, and that's obviously a filler. That's obviously not a very good decision to include that. It's funny, but it's it's funny two three times. It's it's not something that you, <laughs> you like. Oh, that was really smart to put there. <laughs> but but I also because they uh, such a strong album has imperfect moments of of you know not the best judgment. That I that also makes it better for me because there's a human element to it, and it, having something too perfect and too neat is is not good either. You know, it should be some some loose ends and some some stuff like that. Then. Yeah, and I also think that, that the football song that you, you <laughs> walk alone, it's a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every time it comes, I's like, yeah, it's like, whoa! You, you feel people holding hands at the football match <laughs> in England in 1971, and that's it's kind of beautiful, but it's also kind of uh, you know, kind of kitschy and and uh, you know, going for a how do you say a cheap shot? I don't know. It's it's. So these things intrigue me also that it's that there's stuff on the album that I don't really like so much, or I I can't really um, justify. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also the beauty that, and I think that's the thing that that I came away from with 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 from metal. It's that you know the album as an art form and the album being more than this you know just a bunch of songs put together. And I know historically, Sgt. Pepper was the first album to to uh, to make that uh, significance to to make the album an art form and or pet sounds or you know all these 60s things but i heard them later but and metal was the one that i heard that i realized wow the album is just this magic place where you can do things which is interesting because it sounds to me like this was a bit of a anomaly in terms of how pink floyd were working in terms of they didn't have a solid concept for what they wanted this record to be. No, it's it's not a concept album. Mm. Out of the Moon and the albums to follow were were more concept albums that had like a red thread that goes through it. And this is this is just this is weird bits and pieces that they thought fitted together. So so I like that. And it's also the opening track which one of these days, which I think had a huge influence on me for my live performances. When I talked about how I like to build and build and you come to this sort of ecstatic, huge sonic climax. And that song really is that in five minutes. Mm. <laughs> of course, it's it's different instrumentation and it, it goes into this big thing with the slide guitar and, 
it's sort of like a blues in a way, I guess. Yeah. I don't really know. But I've, 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 uh, I've come to realize that many times I'm, I'm sort of playing a person of one of these days when I do my solo performances. I, I think that in the back of my mind, I'm still that 11-year-old hearing, hearing this album and, and <laughs> <laughs> made some impression on me. I've never said that publicly, but uh, there you go. I, I think it certainly had an influence on me. I guess that's one of those things which is audible to you, but no one else. I mean, I can't imagine people sat in the crowd in your audiences going, shit, that's one of these days by Pink Floyd. Exactly. But that's how, <laughs> but that's how, it, it, uh, how it is with when, you, when you're working creatively. You get influenced and informed by things that nobody would pick up on. Absolutely nobody. And I, I had this phase about five, six years ago where I was obsessed with Italian prog music. And I made this album, which is a noise album, but in my mind, it was completely informed by Italian prog music. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I, you, you couldn't tell. But for me, that was, that was crucial. Uh, and I've, also in the later years, I've started producing other artists, and I've, I've, I've come to realize it's the same with, with them. Um, and we would talk about influences and things that they were uh, interested in and it would inform the music but it, the music wouldn't sound anything like it yeah i which is why i find these kind of conversations so fascinating you get a tiny glimpse at what it's like to be situated on the other side of the musical experience because the, these are just things that i guess are so rooted in personal experience and so deeply rooted that you know, there's no way that a listener without some very, very great deal of intimacy with the artist in question would be able to to pick up on these things. But then again, I guess these are the kind of things that later inform listening experiences. You know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go and re-listen to uh, Lass's music and and think about it in context of that potential Pink Floyd influence, which may or may not be fruitful, you know. <laughs> well, I, I guess, but our minds are made in such a way that we're constantly searching for connections. We're constantly trying to connect pieces in, in our mind. That's, that's how our mind is. is. We just, so if you sat down now and said, oh, it sounds like echoes of like Pink Floyd, you would, you would hear the, yes, you, would, yes. you would probably hear the experience, the, the connections. But I, I could have lied and told you that I was very influenced by, you know, Roxy Music and the first albums, which I now love. I, you know, I, I heard them when I was an adult, but I could, I could tell you that and you could probably make that connection too. But I think we should move on to the to the next album, which is probably a more direct, uh, easier to to hear uh, influence on my music, which is which is um, Ground Zero, and there's an album called Revolutionary Pekingese Opera, version 1.28 from 1995, uh, and this this is an album that had a huge influence uh, on me. And it's it's Otomo Yoshihide's 
band. And I, I heard it when it came out, and it, it just opened the whole world for me. It was uh, one of those, um, how do you say, gateway albums. Yeah. And where did that gateway lead you? Uh, well, it, it was crucial in a project that I had called Yaskammer, which is something went, that went on from, I think, 1997. It was a duo with me and a guy called Jon Hegre. And he was, he, was, he, was, he was in Bergen, and I was in Trondheim, and I met him when I played a solo show there. And we connected to our love of this, of this uh, Ground Zero album. And I think it informed our music in, in many ways that you could probably actually hear as well. Yeah. In fact, Onyaz came out. I actually heard that band way back when I was first inducting myself into, into I guess, more extreme or louder forms of music. I think someone put me on to, is it called Metal Music Machine? It blew my head off um, in the best way. Um, so I guess I should thank you for that as well. But um, You're referring to the Jazz Cummer album? Yes, yes, I am, yeah. Okay. I thought you were talking about the Lou Reed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, there was some journalist who told Lou Reed that people in Norway had, had, had taken his title and mixed around the, the, the words. What did and he make of that? <laughs> He w- really wanted to hear it. So our label, the label Small Town Supersound, got these calls from his manager requesting a copy of the album. Whoa. But I, I, ne- I never know what he made of it, if he, if he, or if he ever heard it. Uh, but then again, the, the last thing that Lou Reed did was this, this metal album with Metallica. Mm. So maybe <laughs> we had some influence on him. <laughs> <I don't... laughs> You know how things go around, um, but yeah, yeah. But okay, back to the the Ground Zero album. This is Ground Zero was Otomo Yoshihide's uh, big band, Japanese uh, sort of all star uh, ensemble of musicians, and it's it's just a, a remarkable piece of work. It, it's it's so you listen to it and it sounds like chaos. Yeah, but but very finely designed, controlled chaos. There's things happening which you don't know if they're random or if they're, they're very carefully composed and, and, and put together. And then you realize it's actually both. You know, it, 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 there's, there's the band playing. There's a lot of guest musicians who are sort of cut in there. There's also a lot of sampling, turntablism. And things just, it's just a wonderful album. And even though it's so special to me every time i hear it i hear something new every time i i, I forgot about something that I, I pick up on it's just a it's just this it's just a like a garden of ideas that you go into and it's amazing um i think it's it's, it's and, and they made other albums uh, by grand zero and, <clears throat> and i think consume red is also a masterpiece but i think this one is the the, the, the main one for me yeah i'd heard consume red um previously and i really enjoy that album but even that i don't think prepared me for listening to revolutionary pekingese opera um i listened to it yesterday and took a walk and there are a lot of points where i was smiling and even chuckling at 
some of the things that were being thrown up, I mean, the moments where there's almost this prog rock eruption that's been hyper distorted with screams and feedback embedded within it are just insane. <laughs> it's, it's really, really mad. It's really funny you listen to it and there's there's many moments of you just go <laughs> it's, you know, if you're with somebody you just look at them and go <laughs> you know, which, which I think is a great quality in, in music if you can do that. Um, and this album still does that to me. It's so it's so fantastic. So much stuff going on. Uh, and I, I think I mean, I gotten to know Otomo after this um, in the in later years, and, and as I, I understand that this band was a, a huge, uh, huge, big deal for him because uh, he he uh, he ended it in I think in 1998, and he said he said to me or he said in an interview that he just sat on the, his sofa for for uh, three <laughs> three months reading uh, anime uh, and com- comic books. Um, he, he manga comic books. You know, he couldn't really do anything. And, the, and when he returned, he, he was he started making extremely minimal uh, music, just clicks and hums. Wow. So I think in a way he, he burned himself out uh, on that. Um, and it, it seems from there on he seemed less concerned with with um, being um, how do how you say being a, a, a recording musician he seemed after after ground zero he seemed more concerned with live performance composition for, for you know movies and 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 also installation work um so i guess in a way his this is his um this is his masterpiece as as a, as a recording artist because it's such an intricate uh, and detailed and rich and rich work and he's 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 done things after which are incredible, but often they're they're more um, recordings of of um, you know specific ideas or processes. They're not as uh, carefully put together as as this uh, album is. That's really interesting that he switched focuses after finishing with Ground Zero. I mean, there is definitely the sense, particularly with the fact that I can hear you know manipulation of tapes and and vinyl and obviously with the turntables and and so much um it really does push to an extreme end of what's possible using recording apparatus and that's amazing that maybe it wasn't long after that perhaps he went right that's done <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> time he, to switch I couldn't top that and i think mm. the the process of, it's not just him in a studio editing stuff, but it's also him being a band leader, and he was quite young at that time. Um, and they did this live, also they could pull it off live. So uh, I don't know. He, he, you know, he, he, I asked him about it. He just go, <laughs> you know. He just, <laughs> 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 he's, I don't think he, he, you know, he's also a person who doesn't really care about looking back. And now he's involved in politics. And he's very successful as a soundtrack composer and as a, as a writer and as a installation artist. So he's he's moved on, and I think he's an incredible artist. And, and but I'm really glad he made this one in 1995 because it had huge influence on me. It still does. I still love this album. 
and you've collaborated with him yourself um i was listening to super single which i understand was recorded in tokyo and also i've seen videos of you guys performing live uh, at the same venue which sounded pretty immense i mean what's he like to collaborate with as a musician how do you find that experience of performing live with otomo oh he's one of those guys that he's so good that he'll lift you Hmm. whatever you're doing and you you know he's going to do something that you know he's not just you know he's not just playing ping pong you know but he's he's going to take something and reply and lift it up uh, and and he's doing it since he's with such musicality and sophistication that you don't realize that you know you just played with somebody who's like <laughs> 10 times better than you he's, he's incredible i think he's he's really an incredible musician um i have so, so much respect for him and yeah I've, I've played with him over the years it hasn't been an ongoing collaboration it's more like We've met a few times over the years and, and done a few things. I think we first played in 2001 um, and yeah, and then in Tokyo. And But I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing is this, the Ground Zero album was recorded in a, in a legendary studio called Gok uh, Sound in Tokyo. And I, I made a recording with him in that specific studio about five years ago. Wow. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't realize until after we've done the recordings. It was me, Otomo, Otomo and uh, Paul Nielsen Love, the drummer. Yes. And we were just, we like, we recorded an hour and a half of music. So we were just sitting in the studio. It was, it was in the evening and, and we relaxed. We were just talking about stories. And then I realized this is the, this is the place where he made that album. This is the place where he did those Ground Zero albums more than 20 years before. And I just, I just, it's, it struck me. And, um, but that's because I'm a nerd with a very bad memory. So I should have <laughs> long, long before. You know, like. Wow. That must've been amazing <laughs> to be with a guy himself as well. Recording yeah. in the same place where he did that. I mean, yeah, that must've been incredible. Yeah, that- it was. It was. You know, I almost, I almost missed it because of my, my memory. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I don't know whether it was a review of some recordings or when you played live with Palnis and Love, but to um, kind of bring it round in a strange kind of circle, I saw that someone said that you sounded like an extreme iteration of Pink Floyd or something like that. Oh, there you go. I cannot hide my influence. <laughs> I cannot hide my influences at all. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, I've been influenced by many things. And when I grew up with, with metal music, because in, in the countryside in Norway, you, you either heard the, the pop music, um, which in the 80s was quite bad, uh, <laughs> or you would choose the metal gang. And for me, the metal seemed the more obvious, sonically uh, interesting choice. But I was never really good at being a metal head for some some reason. So... I didn't really feel all that, uh, you know, the comfortable with with being a metal guy. But I, I enjoyed the music. But, I, but what I took most from metal music was the was the the, the sonic the sonic aspect of, of very dense, distorted guitars and and fast drums. And when when I discovered I could make electronic music, that's what I wanted to to uh, emulate in a way. I wanted to make my own kind of metal music. 
So, so there would be a number of metal albums that, that were influential for me, but I, I hardly listen to them uh, anymore, I have to say. Was there an element of wanting to push beyond the extremity of, of metal? I mean, I know for me personally, my own journey into uh, more experimental and louder music I kind of pushed against what metal would give me in terms of an extreme experience. And then I think someone sent me something by White House or Hijo Kaiden or something like that. And then I was like, oh, there's something else. <laughs> was exactly, it like that right. for you? I don't need the, the long hair and the spikes and, and all the posturing <laughs> and the makeup. And, and, and I, was, I was close to the Norwegian black metal scene. And, and you know, they started to put on makeup. And for me, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, this is not for me. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing sonically, but the whole thing around it, uh, you know, I'm going to go over here and, and explore this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I still enjoy metal, but I, you know, I never felt like a proper metal, metal dude. <laughs> So you've got one more album that you've yes, uh, and, and this is an album that I wish wish I heard when I was thirteen years old, but I didn't. I heard it, I heard it a bit later, and this this is Tony Conrad and and Faust outside the Dream Syndicate, which is for me probably the probably the best album ever made in wow. the recorded music. I this this is the one I would would uh, would would uh, claim that is. It, this is the best. This is as good as as recorded music gets. <laughs> wow! What an accolade! <laughs> <laughs> well, you say something like that, and it becomes a more interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, and usually I say when people come visiting and they if they haven't heard it, they go, "Oh, let's hear it," and then I put it on, and the first track is twenty five minutes of <laughs> just a violin drone and bass and drum going doom, doom. And then the violin, and it, but it's so beautiful. It's so, I think it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of, of work. Some a, a masterpiece. I love it as well. I'm so glad you included it on this selection because any excuse for me to talk about Tony Conrad, but particularly with people who actually have a, a more intimate relationship with other is music or the man himself is um such a delight for me but this this record is uh, unbelievable i mean i think what i really admire about an album like this is just the simplicity of the premise that drives it um and there's almost a real faith in that single idea but also the ability to work within those confines into something that feels so liberating as a listening experience um i was going to say is this therefore your favorite tony conrad record but given that it's the best album of all time 
yeah. <laughs> for well, extension. Well, there are days when I like four violins better. If you if you take four violins and you turn it up really loud, <laughs> it's everything that metal music ever wanted to be. It's it's complete and absolute music. It's it's right there. It's it's just a wall of sound and it's so rich and it's it's beautiful. But but you know most days uh, outside of the Dream Syndicate is my favorite ever album <laughs> and uh, and um it's i think now that tony tony's gone uh i think it's it's we need to study tony conrad and everything that he did in his lifetime i think he's i think he's as much um, um a smart guy to take to take uh, to learn something from as say john cage and his writings uh, and Tony wasn't as celebrated in his time as John Cage was. You know, he never got the genius, uh, but he was sort of rescued by by the new generation of of uh, musicians in in the nineties, like um, like Jim O'Rourke and David Grubbs and Table of the Elements. And and thank God for that. Thank God that he had his last twenty years um, uh, with with working with younger people and and doing all the incredible things. And he has such a, 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 a such a, his history is just so much. I mean, just now there came out two hundred hours of him playing the piano. I saw that. It's like two hundred hours. Tony Conrad on the piano. He recorded all that. There's there's so much. It's 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 very hard to talk about Tony Conrad because he was such a genius. And there are other people who can say very smart things about what he did. Um, and I'm just a fan. Um, but I take great inspiration in in his work and i want to know more i want to learn everything there is to learn about tony conrad because i think it it's good for me and i had i had uh, the the pleasure of meeting him a few times uh and one of them was in last time was in 2012 and i i interviewed him um for for my my magazine called personal best and the interview was was cut short because we 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 were served dinner and we didn't get to complete <laughs> We didn't get to complete the interview, so I wanted to pick up later. I, I wanted to, to continue the interview on a later time because there was so much I wanted to ask him. Um, but we never got to do it. And, and of course, in 2016, uh, he passed away. So I finally realized, okay, you know, that's what I have is this 50 minutes of, of us talking and I have to transcribe it. So I did that a few months ago and it's going to be in the, in the next issue of Personal Best. Oh, and in that interview, I asked him about uh, Outside the Dream Syndicate. And, and of course, it's been talked about before, but he, he's, he had some interesting things to say about it, like how he wanted it to sound. He wanted the treble to be sharper, but it, he didn't mix it. Right. Uh, yeah. He said it was mixed without his his uh, involvement. He wanted he always wanted to have to have a more sharper edge, which is weird because I think it sounds absolutely perfectly balanced. It's so <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> and he told me how the the Faust uh, the Faust guys, uh, I, you know, they were living in the countryside, in the in the Vuma studios, and they would be at the mercy of the manager who had a car, but because they couldn't get anywhere. So they were there. They were there, and I think smoking dope and and making music all the time. And Tony Conrad comes, and he's from a very different type of school, I guess you could say. And 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 but he just used them and just asked them to play this, and then he went on. Um, and I th I think honestly he probably wanted to to make 
a solar proper solar recording but he realized okay i have to do it with these these german guys who invited me um so <laughs> they sort of came with with that but i think that was it was a good uh, good coincidence yeah i mean i read an essay that you wrote actually lasa recently about tony conrad which was really interesting to read and mentioned your time spent with him when he came over to oslo um what was it like to hang out with tony as someone who's such a uh, a fan of his work but also as someone who i mean i recently watched and put on a screening of the tony conrad documentary um back when i lived in bournemouth and understood very quickly that I understood so little about him and there were these facets of him which I didn't realise at all even existed. Um, what was it like to be with Tony himself um, as a person? <laughs> he was a bundle of energy. He would run upstairs. Like he, <laughs> it was a flight of stairs, he would run up them and then look at you like, why aren't you running? <laughs> it was... But he, but then, and then he would say, oh, I have to go, because he was in Oslo for a week. And he'd say, I have to go and, uh, and talk to my students. And he would be on Skype, and you'd see all these, these, um, these kids in Buffalo you know, on, on, watching him on a big screen, and he's talking to them. It's in wow. the movie that he, he does that. So he would just constantly be doing things. He was, he was always curious. You know, he, and he, he never played upon that he was a legend and then he you know velvet underground in new york and the flicker and all of this stuff he just wouldn't really you know if you asked him he would answer but you know he wasn't interested in that he was interested in what is happening now and what are we doing and and so and so i, I spent a whole day in oslo going to music stores looking for um the norwegian harding fiddle which is a kind of a violin um, but then it turned out that it takes three months to uh, to have one uh, ordered. <laughs> so, oh my word! But Tony Con Tony wanted it now, uh, but nobody, no shops could supply him with one. Uh, <laughs> no, he, he's just he's really funny, and there's, there was a lot of stuff we we talked about, which I'm really sad we didn't record because it would have been great for the interview. We we had a long conversation about about um you know he he actually liked richard wagner <laughs> wow i had no idea that tony Conrad liked wagner but he, <laughs> he, was, he was positive to wagner and we talked about the connection between death metal and wagner um and and uh, i said that this is, is kind of sim similar music aiming for similar uh similar expressions and he and he agreed and we would really talk about things like this so Tony was Tony was great fun. You also mentioned about him playing live in Helsinki and this <laughs> performance involving a video of a calculator for forty five minutes in which he completely lost the crowd. Was 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 that uh, a show that you attended? Yeah, that was a show I attended, and it was so great to see that he actually liked losing the crowd. <laughs> I he didn't mind that they hated him. <laughs> he showed this, this, it's him crunching numbers on the calculator. It's just a shot of his hand. It's made in the late 70s, I think, or mid-70s on video. So it's not aesthetically beautiful. But, and, and this, this, I don't understand the relation to the numbers, but because I'm terrible at math and Tony Genius, Tony Connor was a genius. Um, but anyway, there's these like crunching numbers. He's, he's repeating these numbers like that. And you, 
they showed that, that video and it was a packed house with 400 people, I think. And they, they thought it was funny for five minutes and then people just started hating it. And you feel these, <laughs> You felt these waves of now everybody hates it and then it becomes funny again because it was just absurd and then they realize it's it keeps going on and on and on and <laughs> so at the end of the screening tony gets up and he says oh i didn't realize they were going to screen the full version of it <laughs> <laughs> and then he said anybody who's got any questions and this finnish guy gets up and says we hate you <laughs> and <laughs> And Tony, you could tell he loved it. He he, he just he's, it was a huge smile. He thought it was <laughs> hilarious. So he he didn't care if people were into what he was doing. He didn't care if he's way ahead of everybody else. Um, he just you know didn't face him. Um, uh, and then and then he, then he got up and he did a, a solo violin performance. And all those four hundred people that hated him started loving him immediately again and they sat there transfixed for an hour as he played so yeah for me tony conrad is is he's he was one of the greatest and we're very lucky to be in this time the same time as tony conrad and i think we should we should learn from him speaking of which could you tell me a little bit about the project you used to have called too limited yeah yeah um well i had a f in 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 ninety in the nineteen ninety eight when these things started coming out again, you could actually hear Tony Conrad's music again. Uh, I had a friend who was equally fascinated, and we we started a violin um, duo. We, we we would just play one stringed violins, just horrible scraping sounds, and we would meet every month for in a an, in in a location that we agreed on, and just explore the, the sonics of that space with our are two one string violins and it sounded awful it really was really oh, difficult nice. to <laughs> we made recordings we did this for a full year every month so it's 12 sessions uh, the last one was outdoors and we were scraping our violins against um, this, the ice and the snow on the pavement and so 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 that that, that was completely uh, us being obsessed with Tony Conrad. I don't think it sounded much like Tony Conrad at all, but it came out of our love for, for Tony Conrad. This has been amazing, Lasse. Thank you so much for for collating these these records and for talking about them at length. I mean, one question I wanted to ask you because it's something that I've been thinking about as I've been putting this question to other people um, is how often you actually listen to these records. I mean, I know with the records that are particularly important to me, um, they almost transcend the desire for me. Uh, sorry, not the desire. Transcend the 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 need for me to listen to them that frequently and yet their presence in my uh, life as a, an artist and someone who thinks about sound is constant and that doesn't change whether I listen to them or not but how often do you listen to these three albums? Good question I would say um, with, with the Tony Conrad of Faust about every three months I would listen to it 
Mm. Uh, the Pink Floyd, maybe you know, a couple of times a year, one 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 or two times a year. And but the Ground Zero has it. I realized that it's been a few years since I heard it, but when I put it on, I realized I still love it. Um, and that ha- that's not always the case with these albums that that you wait two three years and you listen to again. Sometimes you come back to music and you go, ah, you know. <laughs> I've I've had this thing now with a lot of the the, the albums of the le- last half of the eighties. Um, when I've come back to revisit them, I I really don't like their their production values. Like nice. they're like Swans and Neubauten. They have this gated reverb thing going on, which I now find extremely annoying. And that's because I've started mixing and. And I'm now working with drum sound, and I, 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 I now I can't listen to these these albums. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see through them, and this this is uh, the problem. Um, but it's not a problem with these three. Yeah, there's certainly no, from, as far as I can tell, gated reverb on that drum sound on the Conrad Faust. Thing. No, that's the perfect drum sound. Like. <laughs> that is perfect. And I also think with Pink Floyd, I, I think Nick Mason. You, you ask drummers, and they a lot of drummers don't like him because he has sort of an understated, uh, understated um, way of playing that I think com- came out of, of of jazz music. And and people say, oh, it should have been like a John Bonham type drummer. And and I think it would have been it would have been wrong. I don't think he gets enough credit as a drummer. I guess that's the issue with understatement, isn't it? People uh, don't so readily feel, oh, wow, you know, what's going on here? Because I I guess so much of that is to do with what they could be doing otherwise and the absence of particular actions. Same with the Beatles. They're the biggest pop band in the world, and people still say that Ringo Starr was not a good drummer. Mm. Uh, uh, Of course, there's a few number of us who think he's kind of the perfect drummer because he played he played on sergeant pepper and how could that album be any better um in any way it's impossible so so there's something about perfect per- perfection and there's something about what is what is right and it's like so dark side of the moon is a perfect album but metal it's it's a perfect you know so and i think that's that's something that's uh, I think is often overlooked, especially in these times where it's you could you could sit in your your um, in your tiny studio and make the perfect album because of the tools we have available now. So I think it's important to to leave in some some um, some traces that this was made by humans and 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 not not strive for something perfect because life is not perfect. You know, nothing is perfect. So I don't think it should be in. in in art either perfection is is a dead end don't pursue it <laughs> i won't um <laughs> <laughs> excellent advice um it was one final question i wanted to put to you lasse because i think speaking of the current climate i think we've now got such an array of possibilities uh in terms of listening to music and obviously they all have their utilities but for me personally, I think I found it important to retain at least one method of listening to music which I know can facilitate deep listening and a real rich appreciation for the music that I like. So do you have an environment or a setup or anything like that that you use as a means to really listen to records or are there multitude? Uh, yes, 
Well, I have actually my my really good stereo is now in the in a storage uh, space in Oslo because we still own an apartment down there and we still intend to to go back. But but uh, so I, I don't have I actually don't have my vinyl collection with me. Um, but I, I have decent monitors here because I work with sound. Also, I have a home studio. Um, and I do take time to listen to music. I think it's important. And I, it's, it's strange now that now that music is available everywhere, it's so easily you could stream all kinds of music in at the touch of a button from your phone. But still, music as, as a thing has become devaluated. It's 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 lost a lot of what made it important before, and I think that's been taken up by other things. I think it's it's we're now living in a time which is very busy, very saturated, very dense, and everybody is expressing themselves on social media. So so I think some of that has taken up what used to be um, the function of music. And I think that's kind of sad. I think this, this is a time that's not, it's not really good for music, even though a lot of great music is being made. But I think music isn't really being valued in the, in the, in the way it should be. And I'm, I'm not talking about financial things. That's what, you know, the, the artist will see that first saying, oh, people are not paying for music anymore. Well, that's not really the big problem. The big problem is that People don't really care about music in the same way anymore. So I think it's an interesting time, and I don't know where we are going. Um, but for me, privately, I, I, I listen to music, and I, I take great pleasure. And I, I, I take time to, to sit down every day to listen to one album properly, no matter how busy I am. That's great. And I think that's been a key to me feeling very grounded as a a listener but also just in my day-to-day is taking regular time to just make music a primary and a primary dedication uh for at least a certain stretch of time we have to make music important again we have to take out we have to take time to for people like us who, who obviously love music we have to take out time and we need to express that i think and i think you making this this uh you know this this website and, and what you do with these interviews. I think that's it's actually really important, and it's not as much about nostalgia as it is about trying to examine why this stuff went so much for us. Um, and you know, maybe if music, you know, maybe something else came and took music's place that was I, that was that would would be as as valuable as music. That's great, but I think it's been the value of music has been taken up by other things, which is just. Uh, which is not as good, and and which is also something that we're kind of being controlled by. We have all these algorithms, and and you know, we're, we're, it's kind of a bad time. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that a depressive and, and downbeat ending? I'm sorry if if, if it felt like that. <laughs> it went up to a point where we were speaking of the value of music, and now we're speaking at the death of concentration at the hands of technology yeah so yeah i'd like to people to have that sense of stomach sickness as they <laughs> stop listening to this and carry that with them but um yeah but I, I think i think music can can again be important for people i just think we need <laughs> to be better about how we present it i think a lot of us became uh, lazy i think especially in my field of experimental music in the 2000s it became so easy to manufacture 
CDs and make CDRs and and post stuff on on the SoundCloud or or uh, MySpace or what was before that. Uh, and I think that people kind of forgot the importance of of uh, of the music. Uh, they got caught up in that they could just do a lot. And I maybe I maybe I was I was one of them. I've certainly been a very prolific. Uh, uh, artist, but I'm, I'm trying to focus on what is what is important about this, and I take great pleasure in in still making music and enjoying music. And you make so much of it. I mean, I have to say, uh, googling uh, your name against, say, Tony Conrad and Otomo, and pulling up so much information about past collaborations and about things you've said about them. I have to confess, I did Google Lassa Mahag. Pink Floyd, just to see whether there may have been some underground basement show, perhaps <laughs> that I'd overlooked. I wouldn't put it past you, but um, thank you, Lassa, so much. If people want to check out more of your music or thoughts, or I know you work in various different fields, including design as well and photography, but where should they be headed? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put don't you on the spot. Don't listen to Tommy Conrad instead. <laughs> don't listen to me. <laughs> Fantastic. And on that note, Lessa, thank you. And to everyone listening, I will speak to you soon. <laughs>